0: Welcome to this week's episode of Slugcast. As always, y'all know my name is Cynthia and I'm hoping your week has gone well. And if not, I'm sending y'all the good vibes, some positivity, and if you haven't had any positivity this week, I'm hoping that I'm bringing you a little bit more, but I won't just be bringing you a little bit of positivity this week, no, no, no. We have a very special guest. They are crashing my podcast this week. isabella would you like to introduce yourself here
1: yeah hey everyone thanks for tuning into slugcast this week i'm so happy to be here with you cynthia and i'm i'm happy to be talking about uh something fluttery and lovely and beautiful <laughs>
0: i know um y'all is you know my podcasts are usually very like researchy based and I like to bring y'all some pretty cool information and this week as Isabella had mentioned we're gonna be talking about butterflies but before we get into that I want to remind y'all as always we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RSS.com. You can find us by looking up UCSC Slugcast and you won't just be able to find my episodes on there but you'll also be able to find Isabella's and they've got some pretty cool stuff on There are a lot of relaxing stuff. Last week, we actually worked on a guided meditation, so if we want to go check that out, please go ahead and do it. Now, as we move on to talking about this week's episode's topic, which is going to be butterflies, and more specifically, we're going to be talking about monarch butterflies, but I want to start off. Isabella, do you have a favorite type of butterfly?
1: Uh, I don't know about a a butterfly specifically, but I really like moths, and I think peppered moths are really cool.
0: I'm gonna be honest, um, my knowledge of various type of butterflies is not that good, um, but if I can maybe describe the one that I really like, um, it's blue, like iridescent blue, and it has, like, it's very nice. I think they're called moon? I don't even know it, but I'm sure they're related to the moon or something, but they're very pretty. If not, I do like, um, they're I don't remember if exactly what they're called, but their wing pattern resembles that of an owl's eyes, and I think that is really, really interesting and cool, because that's how they scare off predators, because they think, "Ooh, it's an owl. I'm not going to go near it, but it's just the wing pattern. <laughs> so, um, I don't really know that much about butterflies, as you can tell, but I would really want you to guide us into the information that we're going to be starting to talk about right now, which is going to be predominantly about the monarch butterflies.
1: Yeah, and we're talking about the monarch butterflies because um, they're an incredible butterfly, and they're, I think, the most Uh, popular butterflies in our region. Um, They get a lot of talk because they migrate. Monarch butterflies make a great migration through the entire entire United States. So that's what we're going to be talking about.
0: Cool. I think that sounds really interesting. And with that, can you take it away with discussing basically this whole migration process and their names and everything you would want the audience to know about these really interesting butterflies that, well, they have a very significant importance to California.
1: All right, well, yeah, let's jump right into this. Um, monarch butterfly scientific name is Danaus plexippus, which in Greek means sleepy transformation, and this is a great title for the monarch butterfly. Monarch butterflies migrate between 1,200 and 20 miles seasonally from the United States and Canada to Mexico.
0: That's... wow, that's a lot of miles. Um, I don't think even I could stand to a road trip that long, but it kind of does bring to question a little bit, because it's so many miles, is it really just one big hunk of a group of butterflies that all go in one go, or how does this work?
1: Yeah, so their migration is actually multi-generational. So one monarch does not make the same migration twice. And within the United States, there are actually two populations of monarch butterflies separated by the Rocky Mountains. So the Western monarchs that we see here in California have overwintering sites all along the coast and migrate as far north as Washington and have a range as far east as Nevada or Utah. But a few from the West Coast are able to migrate towards Arizona and Baja Mexico and this allows for genetic interchange between the Western and Eastern populations.
0: Well, that's, that's honestly really cool. And personally, I've actually seen the migration um, of the monarchs from Baja. Um, since uh, as you all know, I think I've stated it before, um, I live in Southern California. So I've actually made that trip to go see the migration. And it is honestly a sight to behold. But I think it's pretty interesting that yes, these butterflies make these long, long, trips but I mean are they honestly the only kind of like animal that make big trips like this or are there any other animals
1: there are definitely other animals that migrate like salmon birds sea turtles whales and caribou they all migrate but of the butterfly and moth populations monarch butterflies have the most highly evolved migration pattern which is pretty crazy
0: yeah that's kind of interesting especially because you would think that since butterflies are insects um that they really wouldn't have such intricate kind of migration patterns you would assume that like you mentioned before that the salmons or even birds especially birds that they would have more complex kind of patterns but it's really interesting to note that the monarch butterflies are the ones that have the most complicated one
1: (laughs) uh i will say um I can't speak to salmon or bird migration patterns, but of butterflies and moths, the monarch has, the mo- like, the most intricate. Whoa, I think that's really interesting.
0: And something that I'm kind of curious, now that you're mentioning about these migration patterns and especially the long distances that they're traveling, um are there like a lot of them that die or how many of like how many of these populations like how has it gone throughout the years because i feel like especially with pollution and maybe a lot of people not really um kind of taking care of maybe planting like certain plants that would attract them or kind of help with the population how's that going
1: yeah so over the years there's been a dramatic decrease in all great migrations across animal populations but for monarchs the last three consecutive years have been the lowest number of monarchs in mexico anyways um but this suggests that their population has declined by 90 percent which is absolutely insane and like you were saying this is caused by climate change and drought and habitat loss even driving cars through their migration path really throws off how how intricate their migration is. Most significantly from all of these impacts has been the loss of milkweed, which is actually linked to our agricultural practices.
0: I think that's really interesting. Um, I never would have thought that about, especially like where people either like, where we have highways or where we have freeways, if they never planned out that this is where the monarchs actually have their migration path we're basically killing off their population because of all the smog that we're we're producing that's so sad to think about
1: yeah um it's also i think personally the link between um, their habitat loss and our agricultural practices is really interesting just because usually you think of agriculture as um, having such a deep connection with the earth but in fact our agricultural practices have developed so that they're actually really harmful to the natural ecology of our ecosystems. Um, so, for example, milkweed is an agricultural weed. So it usually will grow in between crop beds, um, in uh, like greenery on next to highways and everything. And the milkweed is so essential for monarchs to lay their eggs, for their babies to feed on it because milkweed is actually toxic to a lot of other insects and birds and animals. So this is the one thing that, it, this helps harbor their population. Um, but um, things that threaten milkweed, specifically are GMOs and herbicides that you know, we use in, in farms and everything to produce our food. Um, So this kind of shows how our food practices have really been a threat to biodiversity and, uh, you know, have perpetuated things like climate change. Wow.
0: This is definitely something that I would never think of, especially, like, just the way that things are already set up with, like, our agricultural practices and the industry of it. Um, They definitely never, well, at least from my point of view, it doesn't seem like they really put a... A, like care into, you know, what kind of um, other biomes or ecosystems they're affecting with the practices, either with like the pesticides or how much cropland they're using, and maybe by actually whatever they're going to be putting in there, it might, you know, you're taking away space for this milkweed to grow, and um, that's honestly really sad to think about. That this is something that we should definitely be a little bit more conscious of. And talking about being a little bit more conscious and knowing like how we've actually affected the migration patterns and the birth pretty much of the butterflies, I think it's pretty important that we talk about basically their timeline of their migration so i'm gonna be talking about this i think that all the information i'll be presenting to y'all it'll be pretty interesting i found it really interesting when i first read it and i hope y'all will forgive me if i mispronounce any of these names um isabella will you please correct me if i say anything wrong
1: yeah of course
0: cool cool thank you so um this is really cool to think about that monarchs spend their winter time within the sierra madre mountains of central mexico and from there over the wintering in mexico they will go from november until february and then overwintering monarchs have their delayed reproductive development called diapause um I've never heard of this term before, diapause before, but can you explain a little bit, maybe of like simply put what this is for the listeners out there?
1: Yeah, and this will make more sense as we go through the entire, um, the entire timeline of the migration, but at the very end, the last uh, generation of monarchs, they do not mate right away, whereas all the other generations do, so their reproductive organs are not functioning the same way that um, monarchs born in the springtime or the summertime do. Um, So they, they just put that reproduction on a hold and then migrate all the way back to Mexico for overwintering where in the springtime they will then again begin to mate once it's warm enough again. Well, that's
0: really cool that they can basically stop their biological kind of impulses that it's time to mate, and they will hold off until they have the proper kind of climate and they have enough of a population to be able to do it. I think that sounds really fascinating. So, kind of continuing from there, in March, um, which... I think this time has already passed. So maybe if y'all live in Southern California, maybe y'all might've seen some of this that we're gonna be discussing. So as y'all know, things warm up and overwintering butterflies will end their diapause and finally start mating, which, woohoo! So the female butterflies, what they're gonna start doing is that they're gonna bring in their spring migration and fly north to lay the eggs, which hopefully by this time, they'll be passing by through campus, hopefully. I don't know, Isabella, will they?
1: Um, well, we see monarchs in Santa Cruz around October and in the fall time and then they leave around January. But we'll talk more about where you can be seeing those in Santa Cruz a little bit later.
0: Well, okay, Um, thank you for bringing in that little fact. Um, So my
1: calculations are wrong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what happens with these butterflies from this whole process that happens in March is that they're basically gonna become the no first generation as milkweed becomes more available of course this is going to be springtime and the the eggs from those butterflies that are going to be moving are going to become basically they're going to be the first population they will be the ones to start it all so I think it's pretty interesting to note as well that it takes five generations of monarchs to reach the northern limit of their migration to complete the annual cycle I think that's I would assume that it would only take one generation, especially with this whole entire process that they're going through.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think what's- oh, I don't want to spoil anything, but I think what's really interesting- interesting about this kind of- the way that monarchs go through different generations through their migration is that the last generation- all the others live like a month, and then the last generation will live eight to nine months, until the next season where they can reproduce.
0: Whoa, that is... Right? Wow, but it's so... Whoa, it's really fascinating that they have so much time discrepancy between their cycles! Oh my gosh!
1: Yeah, and all of that is triggered by climate. So, when um, when the monarchs that have flown north start to feel the cooler days, Um, and, And the shorter days, that's when they get signaled to migrate back to Mexico.
0: Whoa. So, let's see. I think it's also really interesting to note that, okay, so this is all happening in March, pretty much. So, by the time that August rolls around, the fourth generation of monarchs has come by, and they've reached their northern limit. So, apparently, this generation doesn't mate right away, which... I think it's already really fascinating that each generation has its own kind of like cycle of when they do things, or their kind of process, and it's really interesting to note as well that they, instead of going and doing it right away, they fill up their nectar to build up their fat reserves because they're going to be making that long migration way back to the Sierra Madre Mountains, back in central Mexico, where they're going to spend their winter time and they're going to mate again in the spring. So wow that is really interesting to note that every generation has a different process of how they mate and when they mate uh, I think this is this is all really fascinating my gosh
1: (laughs) yeah um I do think that talking about this part of the migration then it's important to note and think about a winter flowering or flowers that bloom in the winter time because then um this provides nectar and food for the butterflies that are migrating back. And, yeah.
0: So, whoa. I, I never knew that it was not just milkweed, but apparently there's so many other kinds of plants that they kind of help the monarchs as become like their mating grounds. I guess you could say like the monarch groves. And these are the ones, these plants are the ones that basically kind of grow along the California coast, which. Um, Hopefully, y'all, if you pay attention to these plants and you live along the coast, um, and if you can get them, um, it would really help them out, especially because this is such a long and complicated process that they have to get through, and the populations are declining, so if you can get these plants, um, it'll help them out. So, kind of going along through, like, the San Diego Coast and the Pacific Grove and Prismo Beach, and even, yes, in the Santa Cruz in the Natural Bridges State Park, um, monarch butterflies love to rest on the Monterey cypress or as their scientific name is I'm going to try my best here <laughs> is the Hespero cypress macrocarpa I hope I said that right yeah that was great Woo! Alrighty, and we're going to be saying the next plant which is going to be the Monterey pine trees or the Primus radiata and the non-native Bluegum eucalyptus, or E. globulus. Um, I think (laughs) these are pretty easy to find plants if you go to, like, maybe an arboretum and they might have them for sale, or if you go to a garden sale, or maybe just even like wherever they sell plants, just ask. Um,
1: Um, Well, those are actually um, the large trees that uh, overtake the kind of grove biomes, um, but there are other. Plants that I mentioned later that um, can be planted more easily in people's gardens and that kind of stuff.
0: Oh, cool! Well, I mean, honestly, if maybe you have like the space in your backyard and you want to plant at least one tree, um, yeah, try to get I yourself mean, one of these. Yeah, I think, yeah.
1: <laughs> I think that's, that would be awesome. <laughs> that
0: would be pretty cool. You can basically have yourself like a bunch of monarchs kind of just chilling in your backyard if they like these trees. So, kinda going off, I know I mentioned that some of these are in Santa Cruz at the Natural Bridge State Park, so I think it's really interesting to note that, yes, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier as well that it's around October when they go up to Santa Cruz, and it's really fascinating to see that it's because the grove is shielded from the wind and the eucalyptus tree flower, especially during the wintertime. Um, apparently the monarchs actually start coming around during that time. And it's just because, well, of course, it's gonna be a little bit of a gentler place for them to relax in. And you'll also be able to see them around November and December, and they'll be leaving around January. So um, if y'all are up there for the winter quarter, um, you should definitely go check them out at this park.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, parking down at Natural Bridges is pretty easy. There's $10 to park inside the park, or um, it's pretty easy to find parking along um, Delaware, which is right outside of the park. And you can take yourself on a self-guided tour of the Eucalyptus Monarch Groves in Natural Bridges during the park hours, which are 8 a.m. to sunset. And as of right now, sorry, just want to note because I have to, um, Natural Bridges requires that park goers wear masks and practice social distancing.
0: Cool. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm currently not in the Santa Cruz area, which is really sad But hopefully I'll be going up again to just kinda check everything out before I hopefully move in for the fall twenty twenty one quarter. So I'm definitely gonna be taking a trip here. And now that we could kinda mention some of like the bigger trees that are basically little homes for the monarchs. And I did want to know, okay, well I mean, what if you don't have the space to basically plant one of these big trees in your backyard (laughs) what can you do to be able to help out the monarchs not just by planting or what kind of things especially because we did talk about um maybe like where you're sourcing your fruits and veggies from because of course um, the fields maybe they're contributing to the pollution or they're contributing to the destruction of their biomes what can you do
1: Yeah, so like you were saying, buying local and organic food because organic agricultural systems are less invasive to their natural biomes. Um, You can also plant native milkweeds and other nectar plants. Um, And you won't only be helping monarch butterflies, but also lots of other local, um, I don't know, environmental players. Um, So getting into specifics, um, there are... A couple different native milkweeds to our region so the california milkweed the woody milkweed and the narrow leaf milkweed are all great options if you're looking to start a little milkweed garden um, make sure though to not plant any of the tropical milkweed which is named Asclepias curassavica that's a hard one <laughs> um, anyways um, it's an evergreen milkweed the tropical milkweed which has been linked to an increased transmission of a parasite that only infects monarchs and can disrupt the natural diapause of monarchs so that's why that's why just you know every everyone has a reason um that's not the quote sorry that's um <laughs> <story>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks <laughs> You can also, um, milkweed honestly is kind of hard to get a hold of. I've gone down to San Lorenzo Garden Center a number of times and they've been out of milkweed. It sells like hotcakes down there. Um, so you can also get your hands on other native winter flowering plants that can serve as nectar sources for monarchs. So this includes the seaside fleabane, um, which is scientifically named Erigeron glaucus. <laughs> um, there's, don't laugh. Blue dicks, um, which is called um, Dicolostema capitatum. And finally, um, Mule Fat. <laughs> These are all really funny <laughs> names. These are some really <laughs> odd names for plants. I'm yeah, not gonna lie. But, but hey, if you hey, are helping out the monarchs, we can yeah, do it for them. <laughs> yeah. Also, Google them. They're honestly really cute. <laughs> um, the the last one is mule fat which is actually a nice little shrub kind of similar to coyote bush um it's called uh scientifically uh baccharis sally salicy yep i think that's, um,
0: Whoa, these are some really complicated names but i mean yeah hey, <laughs> if for some reason you either feel embarrassed about asking like by the common names You can just literally say, hey, do you have some Aragon Glaucus here in the center? (laughs) You can just go in and ask that.
1: Yeah, whip it out. Sound like a real professional.
0: Heck yeah, heck yeah. (laughs) So um, I am curious, um, is there any way that, you know, if you can't do this at home, and maybe by the time that, hey, um, we get to go back on campus by the fall time, is there anything that we can do while being over there to, you know, maybe help out?
1: Yeah, um, I I think if you really want to be hands-on about this, uh, you can volunteer at Natural Bridges. Uh, fall volunteer training begins in September with a focus on the Monarch Butterfly Grove. You can call uh, for information about that. You can call 831-423-4609, extension 3, for details and registration. Oh, sorry. I also want to mention... Um, if you're at all interested, I think another way you can get involved with not only the monarch population, but just understanding the natural history of, of our community, of uh, Santa Cruz, of California, then as a student, you should definitely check out the Norris Center. Uh, they have a lot of cool internships there, a lot of cool collections definitely worth checking out while you're on campus.
0: Okay, cool. Thank you for all that information. And unfortunately, that's kind of all the time we have this week for this episode, but I hope y'all had a really interesting time learning about the migrational patterns, the butterflies themselves, and what you can do either at home or when you come up to campus and you're finally in the Santa Cruz area, what you can do to help out the modern population. And the butterflies, is really something important because this is something that California is very known for and especially if the population is declining we should do our best to try to contribute to some positivity to help them out so I want to thank y'all for tuning in to this episode of Slugcast and I'm going to remind y'all as always you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RSS.com and if you have not checked out our Instagram please go check us out You can send us any DMs for any requests or comments and you should also follow us because we post up announcements of when episodes are going up and more things. But if you would want anything else, you can still email us individually for anything that you would want to know either about us or if you have any requests or if you just want to let us know how we're doing. And that'll be all.